You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're going to turn to God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. It's on page 1166. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Before we do that, um, I would like to share with you just something that kind of illustrates where we're at as a nation and why we need to pray. Uh, We remember today, and it's right to remember, the... Uh, sacrifices that people made and the tremendous losses, the hundred years since the First World War began and the enormous cost in the Second World War and the cost that's continued in uh, other smaller wars since then. Do you know that during the Second World War, King George uh, often asked the nation to pray a whole day of prayer, the whole day, and nobody quibbled or questioned that. I'm thinking of Uh, when the men from Lewis went off to the army and the boat came to Stornoway Pier to collect them. The people went down to the pier in Stornoway and spontaneously sang in Gaelic, Psalm 46, that psalm that we sang. People knew. If you've seen the film, A Bridge Too Far, you'll um, recall the scene at the end when The attack on Arnhem had failed and the paratroopers are about to surrender. Some of them are lying very severely injured. Some are dying. Some of them, they don't know what's going to happen. And in the film, and this apparently did happen, the soldiers broke into Abide With Me. And every single soldier knew the words and could say it. Well, we live in a very, very different nation from that nation. Uh, There was a school in Scotland this week where a parent was exulting in the media that they had managed to persuade the school to remove all religion from Remembrance Sunday. What does religion have to do with it? There's a campaign just now to get the cross removed from the Glasgow Memorial. And sometimes we look at this and we need to realize that what is going on in our culture is as severe a threat as if it were a war because... In removing the Christian traditions from Britain, we're removing the very basis of our culture and our society. And we don't, we mustn't despair about that because the gospel is still the gospel, but we must be aware of it and we must pray. And part of that is we do need to have stronger churches. One of the reasons is that this has happened is the church has been so weak. So we've been looking through 2 Corinthians which is talking about some of the difficulties in the church and some of the things that we should be looking to have. And we're going to look at two very important things this morning. So let's turn to that, 2 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read the first four verses. This is Paul speaking. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. 
For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. We do live in an era of great confusion, where in the church, the criteria seems to be how nice you are rather than whether you speak God's truth. And it's confusing for us. How do we know whether a particular leader or preacher is speaking the truth? And that's one of the questions that we look at this morning. And the second is just as vital for each of us. How do you actually know you're a Christian? How, 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 can you, how do you know you're for real? And it's not wrong to ask both of those questions. Now, as regards the first one, Paul, just to remind you of what's happened in this letter so far, he's written to this church in Greece, in Corinth. He's been accused by the church, which he planted, by some within the church, at least, of not caring about the church, of promising to visit and not visiting, of not being a great speaker, of not being able to work miracles, of being a bit harsh and judgmental. In fact, he really has taken a bit of a battering. He's been contrasted with other super apostles. And in, in the context of answering all of that, in this letter, he's dealt with issues of finance, of death, of ministry, and of suffering. And there's been so much, there's so much enormous benefit in reading through Second Corinthians, which really is best summarized by the phrase, strength made perfect in weakness. Well, now he's asked to document. The Greek word that's used, document, is a word from which you take document. And he's asked to prove that God is speaking through him. Since you are demanding, verse 3, proof that Christ is speaking through me. And so he deals with that first of all. And he gives them two answers. He says, I'm coming to visit you. And when I do, I want witnesses. Because you've accused me of certain things, so I want witnesses. And he quotes from the Bible, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Incidentally, in our culture, our legal system is based on that principle. It's based on Deuteronomy 19. And one of the sad things that's occurring as we move away from our, our biblical foundations is the law is changing. And we're moving to a situation where people can be found guilty by one person's testimony. And sometimes we're moving from a situation where they're being asked to prove that they are innocent. People are not being asked to prove that they are guilty, and that is changing. But here is one of the key texts on which the whole judicial system was based. Now, this is an Old Testament text, was taken up by Jesus and also by Paul, and there's a very important lesson for us there as well. If you're a New Testament believer, you do not despise the Old Testament and you do not assume that it, it is irrelevant. You cannot understand or grasp the New Testament without the Old. Jesus and the apostles assume that the Old Testament is the word of God for us today as well. Matthew eighteen fifteen, 
If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that, and Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Uh, You have to understand that tax collectors and pagans in those days were synonymous, not because collecting tax was bad. If you happen to be here and you're a tax collector, um, we're not having a go at you, but it was con- you were considered to be a traitor. You were, if you were a tax collector in those days, you were uh, working for the Roman Empire. It's as though in the war, in the Second World War, um, let's say the Germans had invaded and you worked for them, you would be considered a traitor. Well, Jesus... Uh, is saying there is giving us a basic principle of how we deal with church discipline. Paul says to Timothy, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. So his first defense is to say, I'm coming. I told you I was coming. I'm going to come for the third time. And if you're going to accuse me, I want the witnesses. You you stand and accuse me. But then he takes a leap if you like. Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Now what's he saying? They wanted Paul to have visions and revelations and miracles. They wanted Paul to come and demonstrate that kind of power. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to come and tell you God's word. And as I tell you God's word, and as I deal with these things, you will find that Christ is powerful among you. Christ was crucified in weakness. You've allowed the Greek culture to come into your church. You've allowed a culture which exalts in human strength to cloud your judgment in the church. And he says, I'm reminding you that Jesus was crucified in weakness, that he was despised, that he was spat upon, that he was a pathetic naked figure on a cross. And yet, in that weakness, he is powerful. And that's why earlier in Corinthians, Paul has said, we preach Christ crucified. And that's why as you go through Corinthians, you come back to that again and again and again. Paul says, I am weak, but I work by God's power. So the rule is very, very simple. And it's very straightforward. We can be very tempted in our culture to judge religious leaders and um, preachers and pastors by the standards of our culture. Are they funny? Are they good looking? Do they say nice things to us? Do they make us feel better? Do they give us therapy? Do they, do they, they help us? Do we like them? Or you might come from a tradition. Are they powerful? Do they speak really well? Are they great orators? Are they able to work miracles? Can you feel the vibe? And all of that, Paul says, no, no. This is what you have to look for. You test preachers by the word. If they speak not according to the word, then you judge that. It's the power of the word. It's not the miracles. It's not the fact they're nice. It's not that they're powerful speakers who communicate well. The question is, do they teach the word and do they show the fruit of the spirit? 
I was thrilled last week to listen to the services, or at least the two sermons here last Sunday. And I was thrilled because I thought they were tremendous. And I didn't think they were tremendous because they were by my son. I didn't think, ah, oh, that's my boy, chip off the old block, whatever. I, I looked, and I, I, well, I listened, and I thought, how on earth did he manage to get such wisdom? It's, if it was genetic, it's not my genes in, in the family. But actually, it wasn't just that. It was, I just thought, I was so proud because I thought, he's teaching the word. That's all that matters. It's the word. It's not about him. It's not about personal circumstances. It is about Jesus, and we learn about Jesus through his word. And that's why all the time, you and I need to, when we evaluate someone's teaching, when we're part of a church and praying for all who are involved, but especially for the teachers, pray that those of us who are teachers would resist all the temptations to point in a different direction, to go a different way than God's word. We are weak. God has set an open door before us, but we battle against sin and self and Satan. And that's true of every preacher. And that's why I think it's so important that you pray for me, that you pray for Sinclair, you pray for Will, pray for Harry, pray for others who you know uh, are involved in, in teaching and proclaiming and preaching God's word. Because God's word is, is what brings us Christ. And that is very precious. And we need to protect that and keep that. Let me say one other thing uh, before we take a wee break and come on to the second uh, testimony. The second question. It's this aspect of accusation against Paul. Why is he, why is he so strong on that? I'll tell you why. Because who is the accuser? The devil. Satan is the accuser. It is so easy to accuse. I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to be negative about people. I find it easy to see the things that are wrong, to see the ways that they get other things wrong. And it's so easy to fall into that mindset. But it is largely the mindset of the devil. It's a, a destructive thing. Now, that is not to say uh, that... What Paul is saying, look, you should all be Christians and all be really nice to each other. You won't find the word nice in the Bible. And you certainly won't find it in Corinthians. Paul's brutal sometimes in what he says. And he, he warns here, I'm, I'm coming and this is not going to be easy, guys. And he challenges them. That's all fair enough. But in terms of accusing, we need to remember that all of us are weak and that all of us need Christ. And that all of us need his power. We live by his power. So that, that's the way that he deals with this issue of prove that God is speaking through you. He says, I'm speaking God's word and you need to hear God's word. Now we'll go and look at this next question of how do you prove that you're a Christian? But first of all, we're going to sing from Psalm 26, which are, um, the words will come up. <coughs> The tune will be a Belerma. I'll tell of all your awesome deeds, proclaiming loud your praise. 
Your glory fills your dwelling place. I love your house always. The psalm up to this point, we're not going to sing the whole psalm. I would have liked to, but it would have just taken too long. And, and I chose this psalm for a particular reason. It's uh, a psalm which talks about David asking, Lord, vindicate me. I've been accused. I've been accused. But I've trusted in you and I rely on your word and I glory in your house. Don't take me away with wicked men. Don't let me listen to what they are saying. But instead, I'm going to stand on level ground. I'm going to stand in your house. I'm going to praise your name. I'm going to praise and proclaim your word. So we're going to sing the latter part of that psalm. Let's stand and sing to the tune Balerma. I'll tell of all your awesome deeds, proclaiming loud your praise. Your glory fills your dwelling place. I love your house always. Sweet no. Turn to Second Corinthians 13. This time we're going to read from verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though you seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Now what Paul does here is he reverses things. And 
instead of them testing him, he says, well, you're going to need to test yourselves. And you are to examine yourself. Look what he says. You have to test yourself to see if Christ Jesus is in you. That's a tough test. How do you know that? How do you know if you're a Christian? It's kind of like a spiritual checkup. Now, there are problems with how we do this as Christians. Some people sing blessed assurance and never bother examining themselves and they they sing blessed assurance all the way to hell because they've never considered where they are at with the Lord. But other Christians or other people who profess to be Christians, they constantly look inward, constantly examine themselves on what they find they don't like. And they are crippled spiritually, emotionally, and sometimes in other ways because they're just thinking, well, am I, am I a Christian or am I not? I remember asking one elderly lady who was a fantastic old believer in her 80s, And she'd been a believer for many, many years. And I was teasing her and I said, are you a a believer? And her answer was, I hope so. Now, there are some of us who were brought up in that tradition where it was almost presumptuous to say that you actually are a Christian. But I think in between those two extremes of, of presumptuously saying that you are a Christian without thinking about it and constantly knotting up inside yourself worrying about whether you are or not, There is this balance which Paul has here. How do we know that Christ is in us? Well, we look for what the old theologians would call marks of grace. What are the marks of grace? And I just want to take the three main ones that come out of the letter which I think is most to do with assurance, and that is 1 John. The first is that you have faith in Jesus as the Christ. (coughs) 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. What does that mean? You cannot be a Christian without following Christ, and you cannot follow Christ unless you know who he is, and following Christ means committing yourself to him. So there are people right now, they get very angry and very upset if you say this to them. They go along to church, they say that they're a Christian. They, maybe sometimes they'll say they're a Christian, they never go near a church, but for them a Christian means a good person, or a Christian means they were brought up in Scotland or something. It's something like that. They identify with a Christian country from the past, or a Christian culture, or a Christian tradition, or even a Christian church, but they don't know Jesus. They don't trust Jesus. They have no idea about Jesus. And they're not Christians. You cannot be a Christian like that. There are also people, I think, who um, would like to be Christians but haven't committed themselves to Jesus. Jesus said, the work that God requires is this, is to believe in the one he has sent. How do I know that I'm a Christian? I know because I trust and believe in Jesus Christ, because I have committed my life to him. And it's not that that's just a a one-off occasion at a special event when I was deeply moved or motivated. It's that's it. That's what a, a, a Christian is, someone who has committed their life to Jesus Christ. And in fact, you could be here right now and 
and not be a Christian, and before you go out of this service, you could be a believer. Because God has so worked in your life that you've seen something of the beauty of Christ, and you say, well, that's it. I remember at times in my own life suffering from particular doubts and fears, and at one point thinking, you know this, I'm not sure about anything except this, that I know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for me, and then it hit me. Well, that's all you need to be sure of. That's it. That's what you need to be absolutely certain of. Your only hope then is in Christ, not your own religion, not your own good works. Some of us are very introspective when we look and we say, well, I haven't done this or I'm not this. But what are you looking at? You're looking at yourself. You're not looking at Christ. So the first thing is you examine, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe that he came, that he died on the cross? Do you believe that there is no other way for you and for anyone than but by Christ? The second mark of grace is what we'll call righteousness of life. 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Or in chapter 6, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You see, what was happening with the Corinthians was that as well as getting into these super apostles, they were also getting away from the idea of Christian holiness. They were into spiritual experience, but they lived in a decadent culture and many of them went along with that culture. And thought how tolerant they were to go along with that culture. And Paul says to them, no, you need to examine yourself. The point about following Jesus Christ is that God's spirit comes to live in you. That your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you are not your own. Therefore, you submit to God's will. It's not that you do good works or you avoid evil in order to become a Christian. It's because you are a Christian that you recognize, wait a minute. I can't live like that anymore. Such were some of you, says Paul. Some of you were, were, were violent. Some of you were homosexual offenders. Some of you were liars. Some of you were sexually immoral. He said, no more, no more. Because you were bought at a price. Now, you have to be really careful with this one. Because if you're an honest person and you look in the mirror of God's word, right now you can say, well, I'm not perfect. I do lots of things that are wrong. I think things. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I don't live this perfectly righteous life. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul, remember, says he is the chief of sinners. He's saying we should aim for perfection. Verse 11 says that. But here is what he is saying. If you become a believer in Jesus, it changes your whole life. Your affections change, your desires change, your lifestyle changes, and it keeps on changing. When you are justified, made right with God, the process of being sanctified, being made holy, has begun and will continue, and it will keep continuing. And therefore, it is a really good question for us to ask, am I growing in grace and What's my holiness like? Now that sounds such a daft question for us. 
What do you mean my holiness? I'm not holy. God alone is holy. Yeah, you are. See those children? They're holy because 1 Corinthians 7 tells us one of their parents at least is a believer. They're holy. And that holiness is the idea of being set apart and separate for God. And I can say this without a shadow of a doubt. That you can profess faith in Christ all you want. But if it's made no impact on your life, you're not a believer. It's not demanding perfection. The third aspect is, is, a, is part of that, if you like. But a key part, and again stressed in both First and Second Corinthians. Love of other believers. First John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. See, there's a problem. Again, it's not demanding perfection. It's not saying, well, I don't like every Christian in this church. Notice how we rephrase it. Or, my love is not perfect. That's not the issue. The issue is this. You cannot be a believer in Jesus and at the same time, hate his people. It just doesn't work. We will love the Lord's people. By this, says Jesus, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So those are three basic tests. What do you believe about Jesus? Have you committed your life to Jesus? Is there some evidence of God's spirit at work in your life? You know, if, if you're concerned about sin, that's actually a good evidence of God's spirit at work because if God's spirit wasn't at work, you wouldn't be concerned. And do you have a love for other believers? Yes, frustrations, yes, annoyance, and so on. But do you love the Lord's people? And Paul asks the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And then he goes on. If you don't fail the test yourselves, you will recognize, this is what he's saying, you will recognize I'm speaking the word of God. They want documentation, documentos. They want documentation about Paul's apostleship. He says to them, uh-uh, I want documentation about your Christianity. When the latter is proven, when your Christianity is proven, then my apostleship will also be proven. He uses an interesting word. He takes the word for document and he puts an A in front of it. And as you do, like atheist, uh, theist, atheist. Dokimos, a dokimos. He doesn't want them to be found to be counterfeit. He says, I'm scared that a bit like a fake banknote, you will prove to be counterfeit. That the appearances are not for real. And Paul's able to say this because sadly for him, he had experienced throughout his ministry people who professed faith and who stood by him and then deserted him and left him. John experienced the same. And Paul says, my interest is not me. My interest is the gospel. My interest is that I don't want to do anything against the gospel or its moral implications. His concern is with the reputation of the gospel not with himself. Now it's interesting, verse 8, you'll notice something there that I find fascinating. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And I think that's a very important thing in terms of the church. People say, I don't like the idea of a church where scripture is, 
you know, the Bible's good, yes, but you're, you're, you're too much on about Scripture and everything's governed by Scripture. And it's not such a good idea. Well, I think it's a great idea, and I'll tell you why. Because in a church that is governed by Scripture, you will have greater freedom than you could possibly have in any other situation. And what do I mean by that? If the church is not governed by Scripture, it's going to be governed by something else, usually by the leadership or the culture of the day or the fashions of the moment or the person who can stand up and say that they are speaking a prophecy from God. And you find that always when that happens, it binds the consciences of God's people. And the church becomes legalistic or authoritarian or liberal and moves away from the word of God altogether. But in a church that's bound by scripture, what this means is that the leadership in the church, and Paul is saying this, I can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. So there are lots of things the Bible doesn't talk about. And there are lots of rules that churches might want to make up, but they're not there. And that limits the authority of the church. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's great that we don't have a pope. And that we don't have uh, somebody saying, this is what you will do. And, or, a, or a group of people saying, this is how you will live your life in every single detail. It's only for the truth. And scripture is truth. And we do not go beyond scripture. And that's why he goes on to pray that they'll be kept from doing wrong and that they'll be restored. Because what I love in all of this is Paul's sheer passion for the gospel. Now what if they fail? And I think that this is the purpose of this whole letter. To get them to think about where they're at spiritually. And I think there are two ways that he deals with this failure. One is, some of you will look at yourselves and you'll realize, I'm not a believer. And you need to repent and come to know Christ. And some of you, I think, he's suggesting it that, that they won't even look. That they'll just assume that they are and he's going to have to come and by the authority that's given him as an apostle, he will have to deal with them. And he's basically warning them that it won't be pretty. He's encouraging them, in other words, to take their medicine before uh, they need an amputation. What about us? What if we fail? Well, if I'm to look at the standards of love to other believers and righteousness of life and belief in Jesus. I'm not going to claim perfection in any one of these things for myself. I need to learn to believe more. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I need to grow in righteousness and holiness. And I absolutely need to grow in love. But as I look honestly, and as you have to look honestly at where you're at, you can say, Lord, I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm, I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck. Or what do you say? You say, Lord, if I wasn't converted before, convert me now. Work in my life. And if I am a believer, do a deeper work. Maybe we look and maybe we've all forgotten that our salvation is an ongoing process which involves continual Repentance. I think the, for me, the most encouraging thing of all of this 
is that extraordinary verse um, back in verse 4. I'll go back to it. (coughs) Where he says, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. We need the cross continually. We are not to be deceived by its apparent weakness. Christ was despised. He was abused. He was mocked. I was thinking about this through reading John Flavel, a Puritan writer, and he just goes into this in great, great detail. And something he said really, really struck me. He said, when you and I suffer physically, we reach a point where we stop, where our body begins to give in and where a whole range of chemicals kind of act as an anesthetic for us and where our body just ultimately just packs in. There's only so much that we can take. And he said, Christ was pathetically weak and it was poured out on him. The cup of God's wrath, if you like, was poured out. Our sin was poured out. Our suffering was poured out on him. To an extent and a depth that you and I will never, ever, ever grasp. We will never understand just how much Christ suffered for us. But says Paul, That's the power of God. All this mess, all this twistedness, all this sin, that was dealt with at the cross. And that's why he says we need this power, yet by God's power we will live with him. And that's just this play on words in terms of the resurrection power of Jesus. We are always being tempted to replace that with something else. And God is saying to us, don't do it. Don't be too keen to judge apparent weaknesses. It is the power of Christ that matters. So we can lament the state of the nation. We can lament the state of our own hearts. We can lament the state of the church. And over all of it stands Christ. And his power overcomes it all. The power that was expressed in extraordinary weakness. And the whole message for Paul is surely the message for us that he gives to the Corinthians. It's a message for us. It's that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Where's our assurance? We ask for proof. Give us proof that you're speaking from God. Well, if they speak about, if they speak Christ and speak his word and speak his cross, they're speaking from God whatever their other idiosyncrasies. Give us proof that you're a Christian. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, I think the answer is in the great question in the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge to those who preach and lead. Thank you. And we pray, O Lord, that you would grant faithful preachers and teachers in this church and throughout the churches, your churches in this land. We thank you, O Lord, for the assurance that we can examine ourselves and find that Christ is in us, not because of our goodness, but because we've got nothing else, because you are our assurance, you are our hope, and because of you we live and long to do what is good and pleases you, and because of you we love our brothers and sisters. Lord, grant that each of us here would examine ourselves, grant that we would be truly in the faith, If we find that we are not, if we are not sure, by your spirit, convict and work within us. And grant, O Lord, that not just us, but all whom we know and love, all whom we meet and see, that there would come that wonderful day when we wouldn't need to say to our neighbors and to our families and to our friends and to our workmates, know the Lord, because all would know you. Grant it in your name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.